Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. Today I'm replaying one of my favourite episodes with one of my favourite people, Seth Godin, who's like an unofficial mentor to me. I follow his work religiously and he continues to have such a huge impact on me. He's the author of over 20 books and his blog, which you'll find at seth.blog, is one of the most widely read blogs on the internet. And he blogs every single day. You'll find a little nugget of wisdom in your inbox if you sign up to that blog. And he has so many amazing thoughts about the industry, about life, about work, and he helps people find dignity and motivation in their creative work. In this episode, we talk about his incredible new book, The Practice, which I think is his best book yet. I also really recommend it on audiobook because you can listen while going for a walk and get a bit of a pep talk. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider leaving a review somewhere. It really helps people discover it. I hope you enjoy and I'll see you again soon. So thank you, Seth Godin, for coming back on my podcast. Thank you so much. It was so good the first time. How can we not do it again? I know. And I thought it's very much on the subject of the practice because it was three years ago. I felt quite rusty. I'm coming up to my 300th episode and I feel like things are getting better and better. So it's kind of all thanks to the way that you work and your influence. So thank you. Well, it's very generous to make a podcast and sticking with it for so long is an art and an act of will. And so on behalf of your listeners, thank you. Thank you. Um, So I've been binge listening to you on many podcasts recently, so I'm very thrilled that it gets to be my turn (laughs) to ask you all the questions. Um, Well, thank you for your book, because I know other people have said this to you, but it feels like it's come at the right time. Well, just the best time. And Is it a coincidence that it's come to us when we need it the most? Or had you planned for it to come out this year, regardless of pandemics? It is not a pandemic book. Uh, The book industry takes too long to do that. And it wouldn't make me happy to do that either. I will tell you that in April, when I was reading the book, I was considering, I had the ability to cancel it. If I thought it was tone deaf, I wasn't going to bring a book like this to the world. But what I realized is, We are in dire straits, but we cannot wait for someone outside to save us. We are each going to save us. We are going to save each other through community and through leadership and by shipping creative work. Uh, You know, we're only 12 weeks away from a vaccine. That's because somebody showed up and did the work, not because someone in power announced it was going to happen. And we can multiply that by everything that has changed our culture. So when I read it in April and May, in the middle of, uh, you know, long overdue racial uh, unrest in the United States, uh, a reexamination of what we even do every day. I was like, I don't want to change a word of this. I'm glad I wrote this book. Yes, I am so glad you wrote it. And I think on the whole, the conversations that have come out of it have been fascinating around just unpicking personally why we even do this work. I went on a bit of a journey with your book and genuinely a lot of my decisions I've made since reading it a few weeks ago have changed. Just my definition of success, I've gone back to the root of what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm guessing that people have kind of said that to you in other forms. Magic. I love hearing it. That's why you write the book. You don't write the book to sell copies. You don't write the book to chop down trees. You write a book, you ship creative work to change people for the better. And if that's feeling like it's working for you, I'm thrilled. 
And in terms of publishing, I mean, I feel like it's such a strange industry in many ways. And I thought it was really interesting what you were talking about on your amazing podcast, Akimbo, which I've also been binging around what success does mean. And there's a really interesting episode that you do around the New York Times bestseller list and how it kind of means nothing. And I can't tell you what a relief it is to hear you say that. Yeah. And I'm, I try not to be a hypocrite on a regular basis. So last week when my editor sent me a copy of the New York Times bestseller list and I was on it, uh, <laughs> mostly all I felt was, well, at least I don't have to apologize to her for not being on it because there's no validation there for me at all. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a marker. It's not accurate and it's not the purpose or the point. And it took me years to figure that out. And there are so many New York Times bestseller lists in our lives. You know, 15,000 Instagram followers is another version of the same thing. And um, what are we actually keeping score of? Is it just because it's easy to keep score of it or because it's important to keep score of it? Yeah, and it almost feels like a bonus side effect to the work. And I guess that concentrating on the process over the outcome. I mean, it sounds like a simple kind of light bulb moment of of course but our culture is completely set up in the opposite direction isn't it it is and i wonder how long that's been the case you know that before 1900 nobody wrote for a living nobody very few people painted for a living that it was considered uh, a luxury to have enough resources to be able to do your craft and your hobby but un unless you knew a Medici, you weren't going to get to do this for money. And it's only then that we invented writer's block. Writer's block was invented in the era of er Ernest Hemingway, where it was expected that you could follow this dream and cash out. Mm -hmm. And that's not what creative work is for. Yes, it's a side effect because it permits us to do more of it, but that's not what it's for. It's for turning on lights in a way that benefits all of us. I absolutely love what you say about how it's kind of not possible to feel like your calling is to be an Instagram influencer. And I know that you're not saying that to um, belittle anything, but we really are in a strange time in the world where we, th you know, young people, I think 80% in one study I read of young people want to be a social media superstar. What does that mean? Right doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's tied in deeply to high school culture. Uh, there was another study done that I talk about in my book, Lynchpin, uh, in which they asked hundreds and hundreds of 17-year-olds, which of the following jobs would you aspire to? College president, U.S. senator, uh, uh, something like a judge, or assistant to a celebrity. And that was the number one match because assistant to the celebrity is perfect because you get all the trappings of celebrity life, but you don't have to make any decisions. You just get told what to do. And these are versions of the same thing, which is the idealized life of the influencer is you get to do everything you do now, but it's shinier, happier, and people like you. Mm. And your book that I have in front of me, just it, just being next to it makes my shoulders drop. It makes me feel so That's much more so relaxed great. about what I'm doing. And actually on that topic of kind of creativity and money and 
this mixture of things. I, I love what you'd said on Akimbo about how your blog is free. And we are very grateful to you for putting that out in the world for free. But there is a line, isn't there, between what you do for free and obviously what you get paid for. And we are professionals. I love what you say about being professionals. So how do we work out what's free and what's not? Okay, so generous and free are not the same thing. Generous means emotional labor was expended. Generous means you showed up for someone in a way they needed you. You saw them, you treated them with dignity and respect. Generous is important and hard. Free actually pushes us away from other people. It's like, what did you expect? It was free, right? That if you, mm-hmm. if you take a, a candy at the bank from the little bowl, you don't get to go back to the teller and say, I didn't like the candy. It was like free, take it. So I don't have any ads on my blog and I don't, try to maximize anything on my blog and I don't charge for my blog because my blog is as much for me as it's for anybody else. It's here. I had this thought, let's see what happens. And I get to repeat that process, but it's very low emotional overhead in the sense that the expectations are different. It is more generous when I'm running, uh, you know, the marketing seminar or when I started the alt MBA, which costs hundreds or thousands of dollars because now I'm on the hook. I am showing up, to do work for and with you. And I'm saying this thing is costing money and it's going to act that way. And so for me, the line is if I can do work for a charity, I do it for free. If I can be on a podcast with a fellow traveler like you, I do it for free because these are privileges that I don't take lightly. But if you want me to show up at a given place in a given time and give a speech, it costs the same amount no matter who you are because that's work. Because I don't get to say the day before, I don't feel like it because I'm on the hook and that's work. And if you want a team of people at Penguin to work on my book and the people at Donnelly to cut down those trees and print it up and the person at the bookstore to make sure it's in stock, that costs money because there's all these professionals who worked on the book, not because they like the book, but because it's their job. And so that costs money. And In the digital world, it's very easy to get confused about all this because the marginal cost of one more person engaging with a digital idea is zero. So it is very tempting to say it costs nothing. But that might be a mistake because it also means that enrollment will be lower emotionally because if you didn't pay for it, you don't care about it as much. Thank you so much. That is so useful. And I think especially for people maybe in the activism space who are doing so much generous work, but need to pay their bills and are doing work that should be paid. And that is just so useful. Thank you. And and on that, I suppose um, that balance between being generous, which is always supposed to be the point, obviously, mixed with um, showing up and doing the work. You are so inspiring in terms of boundaries that you set on your time, especially with social media as well. Like you're famously not on Twitter personally, and you don't love emails. And I find that a really great juxtaposition of generosity. It doesn't mean sitting on the internet all day either. And um, I've actually deleted my LinkedIn being inspired by this book. It wasn't adding anything for what I was doing. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that, how to make time for the work and also show up? Okay, so the work takes time, but it also takes emotional energy. And there's decision fatigue. You know, tourists, back when we were tourists, 
you get tired because all day long you're making decisions that you didn't have to make when you're at home, right? Like, should we go this way or should we go that way? Should we eat this? or And so that's why it's so tiring to be in a strange city, even though you're not physically more exerted. Um, so we need to make time for the work, partly because as Neil Gaiman says, getting bored is a really good way to become creative. When he experiences a block, what he does is he locks himself away from everything. And the only way to entertain himself is to write himself a story. Mm -hmm. And so he's then back at it. And what I decided with the social media platforms is, first of all, for all of us, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product. That they are deliberately making you feel insecure so that you will use it more, so they will make more money. They are getting you to pay attention so they can sell your attention to someone else. And if you come out ahead in that transaction, go for it. But please understand, it was built to make you into a product. So with that said, what I, the advice I took from my book, The Dip, is that there's a huge prize to being seen as the best at what you do. And when Twitter came along, I saw it long before most people. So I could have gotten in Twitter early and had a big following on Twitter. And I said, well, what will I take that time from? Because if I'm going to put some of my day into Twitter to be really good at Twitter, I'm going to have to do something else less. And it probably would have come from blogging, but I already had the best blog in my category. So making my blog less good would cost me way more than making my Twitter great. And so I'm like, no, no room for that. And then with something like Facebook, it's simply almost every time people go to Facebook, they don't leave happier than when they got there. So what do I need to do that for? So I don't. It reminds me of something Liz Gilbert said once about how she gets emails saying, you know, I want to write my book and I can't, I don't have any time. And she was like, in the nicest possible way, you've just spent half an hour on Facebook or you've just written me 500 words in this email. You have, you do have a little bit of time. And if we look at what we're really doing. Oh yeah. And you know, Liz is my dear friend and my hero. And, um, I worry a lot that I'm stealing too much of her stuff, but, uh, the story that many people don't know about Liz is after Eat, Pray, Love, which was the best-selling book of its kind ever in history. She got Julia Roberts to play her in the movie, for God's sake. She wrote a whole book. And then at the copy shop, when she was copying it to send to her editor, she threw it in the garbage. And on one hand, that's a super brave act on her part because she didn't want to write the sequel to Eat, Pray, Love. On the other hand, it breaks my heart because in that moment, resistance shows up and our inability to share the work. If you think it's hard for you, think about how hard it is for Liz Gilbert, right? With all those expectations. So yeah. my suggestion to people who say, I really want to write a book is write something, put it on the Kindle, give it away. You don't even have to put your name on it. Just get the first book over with. Because once you get the first book over with, now it's not a question of if you can write a book. It's a question of what will be in your next book. And too many people hold that one idea like it's a precious magic thing and they're never going to have another one. Well, they're never going to have another one because they're so busy holding that one. And when your hands are busy holding an idea, they can't type. Mm -hmm. And so the beauty of my blog, the biggest selfish upside for me is 
if I have an idea on Monday, it's in the world on Tuesday. And that means I have to have a new idea on Tuesday. And that flow has made a huge difference in my life. Mm. And that Liz Gilbert story reminds me of something that you said on the Kathy Heller's podcast, which I wrote down because I thought it was, I mean, I just had to have a moment with it when you were saying that it is a privilege to get to practice with no one really watching. I love that because like you say, with someone like Liz, she suddenly got the whole world looking at her and we think that's what we want, but actually we want surely the freedom to try things. Yeah, exactly. So I also just really wanted to touch on something that um, has been quite interesting for me is, is realizing who your inspirations are because we're so inspired by you. And it's, it's so interesting to take a moment and think, well, who's Seth inspired by? And I know that on other shows, you've referenced Zig Ziglar and Stephen Pressfield and a few others. And I just wondered for anyone listening who needs a bit of a pep talk right now, don't, don't you think there's something quite magical in just listening to people on repeat <laughs> quite a lot? Um, if you need a pep talk right now, my best advice to you is stop needing a pep talk because reassurance is futile and um, listening on repeat is a magic, magic way to paper over one's need for reassurance. So I love that you've just called me out on this. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, You know, Patty Smith's just kids is the most beautiful audiobook I've ever listened to. And I've listened to it many times. Steve Pressfield, uh, The War of Art is a great audiobook. book. Uh, ben and Roz Zander. Roz's stories about uh, possibility are just stunning. And I've listened to each one of those, you know, at least a dozen times, sometimes many more. Because we're not in short, we're not, there's no shortage of the words. There, the internet is filled with the words. What we are seeking is actually the emotion. And the emotion is coming from within. It is not coming from outside the world. And so when you listen to one of these books over and over again, what you're doing is giving yourself the chance to be trusted and yourself a voice to remind you that you don't need to be reassured. Because the 10th time you listen to it, you know the story by heart. That's not why you're listening. You're listening because it lets you chime in on the choruses. It lets you remind yourself that you know better than anybody what's possible. And uh, until you explore it, you will be hiding your gifts. And so what reassurance says is that everything's going to be okay, that I've seen the future and everything is going to be fine. I haven't seen the future and everything isn't going to be fine. You will be rejected. You will be criticized. Your dreams will not be realized the first time you try. That's a given. But what I can tell you is everything is going to be the way everything is. That whatever turns out is what's going to turn out. That's not reassurance. That's telling you I've got your back. And the person you most need to have your back is you. You need to know that yourself isn't going anywhere and that we might have to go through some tough times to share our generous vision and creative work. But what else is on offer? That's all we can do. Thank you for that. And I probably will go back and re-listen to this a few times. But um, it's true, though, that 
you know, I've been listening to a lot of audio books during lockdown and going for walks and just reminding myself of things. And what I love about your book is that it is that push to take it into your own hands. And also, wasn't the book going to be called Trust Yourself? It was. That was, I own trustyourself.com and everything at no small expense. Um, it was too clever. And my editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, correctly gave me the right sort of feedback. Uh, trust yourself. What does that even mean when you talk to yourself? Because I talk to myself. I don't know if you talk to yourself. When you talk to yourself, who is talking and who is listening? And why don't we think that's weird? <laughs> right? But we don't think it's weird. We think it's totally understandable that there's two of us. Well, the one that is verbal and fearful and controlling dominates us. And the other one is the one that some people call the muse. The other one is the one that has a soft spot. The other one is the one that knows things. And we need to train the first voice to trust ourselves enough to do the work. No guarantees. It's not always going to work. But if we don't trust that second voice, it won't come out and it will corrode us. Such a good point. And um, I actually had the pleasure of, I can't believe I've interviewed both of you this week, but Rhonda Byrne, the author of uh, The Secret, came on the podcast and she was talking about um, that very thing about how your mind and your intuition aren't the same. Your mind is just in kind of fear mode and worried about the noise outside the bedroom, whereas your intuition is actually knowing kind of inside what's going on. And I found it really interesting that when you talk about in the practice who to trust outside of yourself, it's really important, isn't it, to know who to trust, who to let in and the difference between different types of feedback. So your editor, you listen to her, obviously, but you don't listen to everyone. I listen to almost no one. And I learned that the hard way because I used to listen to everyone. And most of us still have scars from high school because in high school, Everyone has a voice. Everyone gets an opinion. And so we change how we dress and we change how we walk and we change how we talk, hoping to please everyone to fit in all the way. And that is when we start to, that is when we stop trusting ourselves, right? That's what they call that growing up and it's horrible. So what I discovered is that people who care about you will generally try to dissuade you from shipping creative work because they don't want you to be hurt. And so the industrial regime persists because parents or in-laws or friends or whatever want you to get, quote, a good job with, quote, a good company by going to the placement office and having, and we go down this whole list because they care about you. But that doesn't mean that they are actually supporting you on the journey you truly want to be on. And there are other people who, A, see that, and B, are skilled enough to give you good notes, skilled enough to be able to talk through what it's really like. I was talking to my friend Brian, who's very successful in movies and TV, and we talked about the fact that many people in the film business are guarding their luck, meaning they got lucky, and so now they have to act like they know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They just got lucky. The people who actually know what they're doing, if they're willing to give you notes, pay attention. Everybody else, ignore them. I love that because I know that you say you don't read your reviews anymore because 
for that reason, they don't, they almost don't matter, do they? Once you've got the feedback you need and then you ship the work. I wrote my first novel this year and it's been <gasps> so interesting because people, I had people saying, this is the best book I've read, which is not true. And I've had people saying, this is the worst book I've ever read. <laughs> and I like to think that's not true too. And so I've realized that there's just no point actually even going there. You know, I did it and it's out there. Emma, I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Because honestly, and I know that you hear this all the time, but your work has had such a profound impact on me that I've been able to take the biggest risks and pivots and trying new things. I think that's fantastic. Have you started the next one? Yes, which is why, thank God, your book is here. Good. Keep going. Because <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't get easier, does it? Well, when you write the first one, there's the question of whether or not you're a writer. When you publish the second one, now we're clear. Mm. When you publish the second one, there's probably going to be a third one. And once you're on that path, you know, name any author you want. The, the runway is always bumpy, whether it's James Patterson or Harper Lee. It still takes a really long time to get it to spin up to where you want it to be. I'm not talking about the sales. I'm just talking about finding this voice and, and, and being able to write like you talk and talk like you write. Mm. and I'm so excited for you. Bravo, oh, Emma. Thank you so much, because what you say about imposter syndrome has really, um, you know, really makes sense to me because I felt like such an imposter. Uh, that's where the insecurity came from for me is who, who, who do I think I am to now go and write a novel? You know, that's not what I've done in the past. And then, I, and then what you say, you know, you flip it on its head. We're all imposters. That's the whole point. No one had ever written this book before. So obviously I was an imposter and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. So um, I wanted to bring up the brilliant uh, phrase in the book. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? If you knew you would fail. Sorry, if you knew you would fail. And that's the tension of the entire thing. Because as someone who likes to hack the three wishes problem by wishing for more wishes, if someone says, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? Well, then I'd want faster than light travel and meeting aliens and all these things, because why not? But what would you do if you knew you were sure you were going to fail? That is when we get to the essence of what it means to share your voice. Because you're clearly not doing it for the result. Because you've just been told the result will be a failure. What would you do anyway? That opens up so much possibility. Because if you say, well, Olive is only going to be read by three people and they're all going to hate it, and I'm going to write it anyway, now you're not going to spend any time at all imagining that you can control the market, imagining that you can control people's experience. You're just going to write the book. And that has just been a game changer for me. Yes. Love it. Sorry, I got the bumper sticker wrong. Don't this worry. is the bumper sticker that has been amended that we need. Um, and actually, there's something that I'm doing tonight, which is inspired by the practice. I'm doing a live podcast stream on Zoom. And I've never done one before. And honestly, it might fail. It might go horribly wrong. I don't mind. I'm going to do it and I can't wait. So it's just very practical, this book, and it's really helpful. Um, but do you think if for any younger people listening who might be in their first job or they might have just graduated or they might be feeling um, a bit kind of freaked out, especially right now with the jobs market, do you think that you do need to be chasing these traditional 
accolades to get started. I just wonder if sometimes it is like something that you can look back on when you're slightly more established and you can be like, I don't need any of those things. But this is something that I wish I'd known back then instead of chasing all of the shiny things first. So if you're new to the job market, you don't have kids, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a career that you're going to have to worry about exploding. What better moment to show up as a meaningful specific? What better moment to take risks? It's really, really hard to blow it all up when you're 40, I got to tell you. But I was so fortunate when I was 23 and I got a job at a fast growing company with 30 employees and I knew the president of the company had my back. My boss did not. My boss tried to get me fired, but the president of the company had my back just enough. And I was just a maniac because it was somebody else's money. What the heck? And I worked with Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke, and I met Isaac Asimov. And I'm just like, oh, I'm going over here, and I'm going to try this, and I'm going to try that. Why not? Like the people who were two cubes away from me who were fitting in all the way, I don't know what they're doing now, but they're not telling stories about what happened in 1984, I guarantee you. This is a magical moment because we're all in such straits, and the world is so transitioning that if you're not going to be a maniac now, then when? This is the moment, no matter how old you are. Mm. That is so true. That is so true. And I actually read somewhere or maybe heard it on a podcast that you've been working from home and doing your thing since, yeah, since the 80s. Yeah. So for anyone now who's suddenly working from home, is there any, any words of wisdom you can give? Well, you know, the first thing that I would say to people who are working from home is uh, be careful that you're not also living at the office. And this is really true for organizations. If you work from home for a company that has Zoom calls all day long, they're having Zoom calls as a form of taking attendance and getting compliance, not because they actually need to have Zoom calls. And they also are starting an hour early and ending an hour late and expanding all of those things. And then you're checking your email. So you can feel like you're very busy, but you haven't done anything where you were shipping creative work. And the discipline is to say, I'm closing the lid on this device, right? Maybe you need a second device for your side hustle. Maybe you just need to be able to say to your boss, I'm all in, but at this hour, I disappear. That's really important. Um, I made a rule for myself when I started because I was literally working from home for myself, by myself. Uh, number one, don't go to work naked. And number two, no napping. Because once you take one nap, it's all over. So I haven't taken a nap since 1986, basically. Uh, and, but the other thing is, it's if you've been raised in an external culture of, did you get an A? Did you pass the test? Did you get a promotion? What is the deadline? Too much freedom is a real problem because you'll just noodle away the time. And so it doesn't have to be a weekly podcast. It doesn't have to be a daily blog, but you need a thing you're doing on the regular where you are shipping creative work and someone in the universe is interacting with it. And I don't care what it is. For me at the beginning, it was selling. I was making three, four, five sales calls a day. Because if you don't pick up the phone and you don't talk to somebody, nobody knows you exist. And I wasn't hustling people. I was calling people who wanted to hear from me. But 
this idea of saying, I am in a circle, I have peers, I am connected, that's really important, particularly in this moment of disconnection. And I guess the, the last tactic I'll give you is there's no cost to organizing a group. Find four people who are sort of like you and have a regular Zoom call with them. They will be so grateful that you organized it. And if they turn you down, then find somebody else. But that circle, 10 years from now, you'll send me an email thanking me for telling you to start a circle. Thank you so much. That is such good advice. And yeah, st stuff that I definitely need to be more aware of. And I've been working from home for about five years now. And but this time has made me really get, you know, get my routine together and um, make sure, yeah, that we there are boundaries between it all, because otherwise you could be working all the time. Um, but on that note, actually, of because you mentioned your friend Brian, and I've just realized he's quoted on the back, isn't he? Yeah. Brian Koppelman. Yeah. And um, I actually listened to you on his podcast recently. And um, I just wanted to mention it because anyone listening right now, after you've listened, go and listen to Seth and Brian talk because you two are just such a joy to listen to. We have so much fun together. And it's not normal for a 50-year-old, 55-year-old guy to make a new friend. Um, he's one of my closest friends. And we just hooked up like five years ago. He's generous and smart and challenging and um he can't cook and i can so we're a good team <laughs> oh thank you um thanks for your time seth and thank you for writing this book and coming back on it's been so fun this was really moving for me i i like talking to emma thank you for taking the time